You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. So the guanaco has all the bells and whistles. And basically it does look a lot like a llama or an alpaca. What can they teach us? found it much, much higher, you know, we're talking 10, 15,000 feet up or 4,000 meters, uh, is like thick blood, like a lot thicker blood than us. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. There's going to be a lot of surprises in this podcast today. I I did some deep dives. I've always wanted to know about llamas, but going to the wild counterpart, the guanaco. Wow. Some really cool, fun stuff in here today. Some llama drama, if you know what I mean. There you go. Absolutely. We were just watching that video that you sent me, and uh, I can't wait till we get to that part. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a fun podcast. Guanacos are so cool. Uh, very, very unique species of South American chameleons. In my past life as a zookeeper, I was uh, able to work with camels, uh, Bactrian camels, which are humongous, and also alpaca. So today we'll talk all about guanacos, but we'll bring up how alpacas and llamas and then the vicuñas are mm-hmm, all related mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. yeah it, it should be super fun the guanacos they have some incredible adaptations for living in some really harsh climates and they're just a beautiful species of ungulates uh, and they're not endangered so that's that's great news uh, they are our least concern but it's something we want to keep our eyes and ears to because there used to be over 50 million guanacos living in oh, South yeah. America. Yeah. Today, estimates are between 600, 500,000 uh, with yeah. 90% living in Argentina. And so that's anywhere from like 5 to 10% of the, their original uh, population. So we've got a lot of issues with human activity, ranch, sheep ranching, and then hunting and poaching I'm going to talk about today. So yeah, it's definitely a creature that's not of concern currently, but uh, we need more of them, that's for sure, because they definitely brighten up uh, the landscape. Well, they're heading that way too. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to talk, touch upon some of that, uh, a lot of the challenges that they're facing. So yeah, least concern today, but the tra- 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 uh, that trajectory is not looking great. Uh, for them so there is a lot of concern and i this was a mystery species to me that's why you know again love doing this podcast we 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 do some of these species that people haven't heard of before or didn't know about i mean most everybody listening is going to know what a llama is or 
alpacas but the guanaco i didn't know until i visited you know where your husband john works yes there in florida and i was like a guanaco what the heck's that and i walk over and i'm like it's a llama no no it's no, a no. Guanaco. Yes. yes well and chris you bring up a good point i wanted to dedicate this episode to squirt from the santa fe college teaching zoo he is an icon watching my son uh just his eyes light up and the way that he loves just love squirt, uh, makes this mama's heart sing. But guanacos can do that because they have big personalities and beautiful faces, eyelashes I'm going to talk about, ears. They've got they're the whole package, long necks. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. It, 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 they're, they're fun. I mean, they're a lot of fun. And uh, you get a lot of, learn a lot about them today. And really, they're, they're critical importance to the people of South America. So, you know, shout out to all of our listeners down there. Thank you for, for joining us and downloading the podcast. And hopefully we do uh, these animals justice because they're in many of your backyards. And I just want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. It's you're making a difference. You're helping us uh, spread the word. And we are contributing back to the organizations we cover. We actually have some interviews lined up, some big ones. Uh, I've, I've got a big one lined up that I should be knocking out this month. Hopefully, we'll get out to you in January of next year. Uh, but thank you so much for supporting us. Again, it's 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 a cup of coffee a month, a Starbucks a month, you know, five bucks uh, a month supports us and supports conservation. And it is the holiday so season. <laughs> And Chris, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Africa Travel Center. They put together a list of the best, 10 best podcasts, and they selected ours as one of them. So I thought that was great. And you can uh, check out africatvl.com to see the list of others and uh, to learn more about Africa Travel Center. I know. I loved it. I was like, oh, we were the first one, too. So I was like, oh, you know, makes, makes, makes us happy and uh, keeps us driving what we do because it, whatever we see downloads, like I always say this in some of the podcasts when downloads from like Uganda, I just imagine somebody or Rwanda is listening to the mountain gorilla episodes before they go up into the forest and see these animals up close and personal. I mean, it shivers down my back that you and I can actually make somebody's encounters with these animals that much more impactful. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting us and shout out to them for doing that. Now we're, we're in a different continent. We're going to South America, yes. but one of my favorite homes disc- away from home. I know. That's what I love. I love when we come to South America because you got to see pretty much a lot of the continent. Yes. I saw llamas uh, and guanacos when I hiked Machu Picchu. <laughs> poor thing. You poor thing. <laughs> I have, but this is what I mean, I have to know, find the photos. This is, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself. This was, I traveled with my, my buddy Matt, uh, and we actually got to do the, the Inca Trail, which is a three-day hike. Mm-hmm. And then, you, of course, the last day you hike into Machu Picchu. I think it was like a sunrise hike, like at six in the morning. Stunning, uh, but this is without cell phones. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I don't even. I mean, we had travel books, and um, I guess I must have had a debit card and just exchanged my money. And yeah, but anyways, it was incredible. I want to go back. I want to bring my kids back to take John uh, to see. Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful Peru is be- all of South America is beautiful, but uh, Machu yeah, Picchu yeah. is very special. And there's photos of llamas and guanacos. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the photos, but I. They probably are just llamas. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to dig those photos out of the box because we didn't have smartphones back in the day. So I think it was yeah, like a disposable, yeah. well, like disposable camera quality, right? 
I think it's, you know, because we do have a lot of uh, younger listeners that email us or uh, speak to us and say, you know, what can I do and this stuff. And, and I hope Angie's Travels in South America, ins- you know, inspires some of you to travel before you get going in life and finding your careers and settling down, have kids or not. It's up to, you know, before you do all that, go and see some of these areas yeah, in see the, the world, world and, and experience and that culture. Was, I, yeah. 20 some years ago, That's I remember wanting to get into the Amazon being worried about its devastation and wanting to see some of the pristine areas. And that, that definitely motivated me. And it's why I, why I want to get back there. Uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, no, the world is a, a wonderful place to visit if you can. Is it Susan Smith? You need to go on her boat? Mm-hmm. The Pink River yes. Dolphins. That was your first interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way back when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll get, we'll get back down there. Okay. Describing the Guanaco. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, I mean, every, yeah, if you yeah, listen to this are. podcast, you know I am a fan of ungulates, hoofs, horns, uh, large herbivores. So the guanaco has all the bells and whistles. And basically, it does look a lot like a llama or an alpaca because the guanaco does have a long, slender neck, which is typical of camels. Uh, and they do have small heads, no horns, no antlers. They have the darling split upper lip, which is uh, comes in handy for multiple things, including when they spit on you. And FYI, if you have not been spit on by a member of the chameleon family, which of course will be the camels or the llamas and alpacas, you have not lived. I have been lucky <laughs> enough to have been spit on several times by camels and alpacas. And it's, uh, we'll talk about that more in the podcast. It's uh, definitely, definitely a, a club that you're yes, lucky to be yeah, in. I'll yeah. put it that way. Uh, but what's really stunning about guanacos, I think, is their large eyes. And they have beautiful eyelashes. Very, very thick. Like uh, many, many women would probably be very jealous of them. But uh, we'll talk about the role that their eyelashes play in their harsh climate. And their ears are large and pointed. And although they are a, a, a member of the chameleon family down the evolutionary tree, they don't have humps. Uh, and so, and they're definitely smaller in size and their feet are pretty broad. Now, what guanacos do have in common uh, with their camel cousin is their feet. So they'll have two padded toes on each foot and that's going to help them cover this rocky mountainous ground that they live on. Uh, but the pad is actually really squishy if you ever pick it up or touch it. So it provides a lot of uh, shock absorbency. And of course, our domestic llamas and alpacas are pretty famous for their fur. Or their, it's actually called fiber, uh, which Chris and I could probably do for all of our um, for all of our alpaca and llama fans out there. Uh, we will probably not do their fiber justice. I know that's, it's like we could do, we, we could do a whole podcast on fiber. It's a, mm-hmm, uh, especially mm-hmm. if you show alpacas or llamas, it's, it's a thing. Uh, but we'll talk yeah, about it. Yep, it's very, yep, very yep. special, very thick coats for this terrain, this cold climate, mountainous climate that they live in. But what really separates uh, guanacos, I think, from llamas is going to be this distinct coat pattern. Because the domestic llamas, and alpacas can have various shades of color. In fact, uh, the herd of alpaca that I worked with, there was Maria, who was white, Zoe, who was, oh, she's a little tubby, t- 
Tubsicle. Uh, she was dark brown. And a couple others that were black and white and brown and white. Bianca was brown and white. So definitely a variety of shapes to the fiber of the domestic, uh, the domestic species of llamas and alpacas. But the guanaco is similar in color. And so their coat is going to be a light brown to dark reddish brown, depending on where they live, but brown tan in general. And then they have this beautiful white counter shading on their belly, their chest, and their legs. And on their belly, it actually is very visible because it comes up onto their sides. And so it just really gives them a distinguishable character that's much different, in, at least in color and pattern, than their cousins, the llamas and the alpacas. So yeah, just a beautiful, beautiful species, I think. And I could look at their eyes, their face all day. I just love their little noses and their split lips. So Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that too. Yeah, and I mean... They're not quite as big as llamas, right? I mean, they're just... They are small, not, right? So if you have a trained yeah, eye, yeah. I think you put the two next to each other. The, you, the size would probably help you distinguish the difference. And then I think definitely the coat pattern. Yeah, for sure, the coat pattern. But I mean, still, I mean, a, a, a large animal. I mean, these llamas up guanacos are, are, are quite large. I mean, anywhere from six to seven feet in length or up to 215 centimeters. Height at the shoulder, uh, only about you know, three to four feet. So, or up to 130 centimeters. So not super tall at the shoulder, but you know, at the head, 60 inches, five feet. And then weight, I mean, weight's a little bit, you know, more substantial, 200 to 300 pounds or up to 140 kilograms, where I think I've read llamas can wear anywhere, weigh anywhere from like 400 pounds plus sometimes the larger ones. So not as big. No, but they are a very, very large herbivore. In South yes. America, yeah. are they mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. llamas are the largest? Right? Is that real? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I mean llamas would be, and then then you have the guanaco, the wild counterpart. So, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that. What came first, the llama or the guanaco? Because there was a, seemed like there's a little bit debate there, and, and I had to really kind of dig down on that when we get to evolution. Now, the range of the guanaco, massive range in South America, you know, from where Angie went from Peru down to Chile, Argentina, parts of Bolivia and Paraguay. Yeah, that was very that was pretty I, much my travel loop. I didn't I yeah, didn't go to yeah. Paraguay. Uh, yeah. but it's 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 uh hopefully it'll happen someday soon. Yeah, you went all the way down there and then you went and did the cruise on the Amazon and Yes. Yeah. I did not reach Tierra yeah. de Fuego and we'll talk about that a yeah. little bit later. Yeah. And it's it's yeah, significance yeah, yeah. when it comes to, to Guanacos. Yeah, yeah. But what I found interesting now, generally, you think Guanacos in the highlands up to 4,500 meters, which is almost you know, over 10,000 feet. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know really why when it's for me. Well, of course, because I'm American, the meters doesn't quite sink in for me, uh, which is shameful. I know. I apologize to everyone else in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but man, when you when you say miles or even kilometers, that to me because I jog, and so that that is that is extremely high above sea level i mean you're talking almost fifteen thousand feet so i'm you know that's way up there and they love these dry well love this is where their habitat is normally uh, dry 
low low rain, uh, low productivity with plants and everything else, shrublands. But what's interesting about that guanaco is then you you will find them near sea level in wet temperate forests. You know, so they range because when you get yeah. up, you know, to Peru near Colombia, mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, they, they, yeah, they, yeah, the guanacos have the biggest distribution of all the four species of South American camelids. Yeah, yeah. So it is very diverse. It's not just the, mm-hmm. the yeah. It's just not the high deserts or in the Andes Mountains. It's actually they they can get a little bit lower than the four, and then it, that does affect on some of the subspecies, which we'll talk about here, but. You know, Angie, when I when we always answer why care about an animal, it's I mean the 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 llamas and the alpacas have been majorly important to the culture there for thousands of years in South America. Um, the I mean, obviously from a wildlife standpoint, guanacos and the vacunas. The alpaca wild counterparts are very important to the biomes there. But I just think, for, for me this week, I kind of thought about it from the cultural standpoint. And it's just, they're so important to the the peoples there. Oh, absolutely, Chris. And traveling throughout the re- different regions, too. I mean, you can tell they, they uh, sell a lot of different um, different types of clothing and uh, linens and dolls and just accessories that of course are made from llama or alpaca fiber uh, and and just very celebrated in the culture like actually a llama is uh, you can just find these breathtaking photos online of Machu Picchu and several of them have llamas in there like in several posters I mean it's just it's really uh just an important like you said a very important species culturally speaking historically uh uh for the peoples of South America and then just speaking personally from my own experience uh I didn't work with squirt as a zookeeper because once again he was at the zoo where my husband now currently works but my husband got to work with him and just Hearing several stories about him and all the keepers he worked with throughout the years is just, it's just really eye opening. And then from my own experience of working with uh, this herd of five alpacas in Chicago, such personalities. I mean, really big personalities. And anybody who's either worked with a camel or an alpaca or a llama i mean there's uh, there's people out there that just love them and have them um at, on their hobby farms i don't know if i'll be able to capture in this podcast just how cool of species they are and uh and we're going to talk about their physiology today and some of the facts that i was learning about guanacos i actually uh, blew my husband's mind because he's of course works with them and helps the students work with them but he there's several things he didn't even know because they just they're really cool and their physiology is really really unique from personality to physiology the guanaco is one cool species and when we need to love them and conserve them that's for sure yeah i mean absolutely and that, and that part of the earth it's just there's so much biodiversity in south america it's one of the most you know obviously the amazon but when you get outside the amazon and get up into these highlands. I mean, there's just some crazy fun animals uh, that we, that we've we, we've been covering. We've covered the chinchilla 
And now we have the Guanacos, and you've had a couple interviews from researchers down there in South America. Yeah, in the America. Patagonia re- region, which is so beautiful. Yeah. And I, oh, I yeah. just, I watched a couple clips on BBC and PBS about Guanacos, wild Guanacos, and just seeing the terrain that they're in is just, it's just breathtaking. It's such just beautiful, beautiful uh, part yeah. of the world. Well, I hope to get there. And there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of challenges on going there. I know last week we we talked about the Spix's macaw, so we covered a little bit on the Amazon, uh, what's going on there. So sticking in South America, the challenges that they're going through are tremendous. And one area of climate change that we that we've we've touched upon a little bit when we've looked at this part of the earth, but not a lot is these highlands are going through a lot of, of change that is starting to impact guanacos and vicuñas and all these other species there. And one of that is because the temperatures in the Andes are rising and the glaciers there are melting at a rapid rate. We haven't talked a lot about glacier melting. I know we've talked about Antarctica and the Arctic, but glaciers are another critical piece of how do you say it, the biome that provides a lot of moisture for river streams so animals can drink and then downriver in streams just to the people that are dependent on these water sources. So looking at the research there, you know, what are some of the challenges? I mean, just just for an example, in the Andes, the Peru glaciers have shrank by about a third from 2000 to 2016. So they're losing right now about three feet of thickness each year. And scientists are saying that the Andes have lost more of their glacier covering compared to anywhere else on Earth. Oh, I I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Andes are actually melting quicker than anywhere else. And that's compared, like here in New Zealand, our glaciers in the South Island are melting rapidly, and it's a big concern. We know in Greenland... The, glacial, the glacial melt is a major concern. Well, the Andes actually are losing their 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 mass, their glacial mass, quicker than anywhere else. I, I was like, wow. And the concern is from the human impact. A lot of towns and cities depend on their water supplies due to these glaciers. So, like La Paz. Beautiful part. You've been to La Paz? Of course, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful, okay. beautiful. I didn't, I really only spent a couple days, so it was not enough time. And then uh, at, we, I was traveling through to uh, Lake Titicaca, which is also beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Mm-hmm. That's the capital of Bolivia, correct? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Lucky, 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 lucky. All right. Well, so they're the peoples that live there, their water's at risk. Obviously, think of the wild animals up there. They depend on this moisture because there isn't a lot of rain up there. But all that water also goes into our oceans and is contributing to higher sea levels. Now, the other impact is just, is the Andes Mountains are becoming drier and drier. There's not a lot of rain. It's already an arid region on Earth. And today, in December 2022, the Andes are going through what they're calling a mega drought that it's the a decade long drought that's been you know that that's for the last 10 years 
they have not had a lot of rainfall. So a lot, a lot of snow. They're not helping the, the, the glaciers maintain or grow. So they are seeing very, very little moisture up there. And life does depend on some moisture. I mean, desert animals and plants can live off not a lot, but when you're going through these mega droughts, it kills them off. And it's like, I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, you know, to, to bring it closer to home, you know, my home, home where I grew up in California and it goes, you know, goes back to the Joshua tree that's, that's heading towards extinction because the young plants need some moisture to grow. The older plants have established root systems that can survive drought. The younger plants can't grow. So when there's no young plants, all you're going to have left is these old plants dying off and you're not going to get a new generation. So, so they're endangered. So that's a big concern there. So, uh, and the other impact of climate change down there is again, this complex ecosystem feedback loop with the Amazon rainforest and these high mountains. There's things called up there called cloud forests that are above 5,000 meters. I don't know if you got to see any of those. Not technically. Uh, in Venezuela, I uh, hiked up a tapui, which is a tabletop mountain that's pretty flat. Uh, and it felt like we were in the clouds, but it was not a forest because it was a flat mountain and the topography there was like literally out of this world. Uh, but I have been in cloud forests in Costa Rica, in Monte Verde. So that was really cool. That's like in the north central uh, Costa Rica. Yeah, so the, they have those. I mean, in the Andes and, and parts of Oh, and I guess uh, I'm sure America, Machu Picchu, when I was hiking through there, I was because we yeah. uh, we actually had to fly. You have to fly into Cusco, and uh, which is a, the city nearest to the start of Machu Picchu. Uh, and that was a really high elevation. I don't know it off the top of my head, where they, they encourage you as a traveler when you get there to – stay there for a couple of days uh, because of altitude sickness. If you go in like hiking right away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, I, yeah, I yeah, need yeah. that advice. And Cusco is a brilliant, spiritual, incredible, just an incredible city that I have probably no pictures of because I think I had a disposable camera. <laughs> <laughs> I have the them day. in my mind, you know, and I wonder maybe yes. I wonder some of those photos and I mean, those experiences were obviously life changing and I have those memories forever and uh, they met people, met animals and they helped inspire me to be who I am to this day. But maybe without my a smartphone, I had to, I really absorbed uh, it more. I just really yeah, took it. Yeah. yeah. I took everything in like a sponge now because I can literally remember the hotels, some of the eateries, the plazas, the music, the landscape, and then hiking through Machu Picchu with my guitar on my back, <laughs> mind you. So yeah. fun. Yes. Uh, to, to, why well, I had to bring the guitar, of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so for our three days, for our three uh, I'm just days jealous hike. of all the good I'd food. That's I'm just jealous for. <laughs> oh, the food! Yeah, I mean all of it. The beautiful textiles yeah. and just, oh, just yes. Yeah. So I didn't have a smartphone. Very little documentation of it. Uh, the good old yeah, things, I know, right? I know. I just live in here in New Zealand. I I miss my Hispanic food so much, so much. All right. So those cloud forests, they've been deforested in a lot of parts of the Andes. So there's there are efforts underway to replant them. But scientists are saying, or it's been quoted as, if the Amazon's the lungs of the planet, the Andes are its lifeblood. And so taken together with the, the cloud forests, the glaciers melting, 
the hot, arid, uh, less rainfall or snowfall is all going to directly impact the Amazon. So again, this this is a a a biodiversity hotspot in crisis. Like Madagascar, I think you're looking at South America as a big problem. And you know, when you look at the data, the scientific data, I mean, when I look at temperatures versus rainfall on each chart here in central Chile, in the Patagonia, uh, in Peru, uh, in the scientific study I looked at, it was in the last you know, 20, 30 years, temperatures are, are spiking and rainfall is dropping uh, in the opposite direction. So it's, uh, it, it's not good. It's not good. And how this impacts guanacos directly, I'll sum this paper up and move on. But uh, the, what got me going down this rabbit hole was I found this paper and it, it's titled Climate Change Contributing to Conflicts Between Livestock Farming and Guanaco Conservation in Central Chile. And they're finding a lot of human-wildlife conflict because of uh, li- you know um, ranchers going up in these regions and the guanacos are competing with the cattle and sheep to eat whatever little resources there are up there. So they're finding, uh, like you said, guanacos being killed, uh, being driven off. Their numbers are down because they are in, in direct conflict because the resources in this part of the world are shrinking due to climate change. So this paper, just to, to give you some positive news, it does highlight it does says this is a problem and then gives some solutions to help uh, reduce this uh, conflict that we see around the world. I mean, we talk like I love going to Nepal and the things they've done with clouded leopards and all of their wildlife. These are the things starting local, getting the locals involved that the, we're seeing implemented uh, around the planet. So, so it does affect guanacos. It does affect all of those animals there. But the good news is, is the scientists and the, the the governments are being made aware of it, and they are seeking solutions. So, guanaco and vicunas and and all the other wildlife can can live, you know, in peace with people. Absolutely, Chris. And I, and I know that that's a goal for people that live in the area, because as we mentioned earlier, they are such a, an iconic species. And, and so there, there is work being done. We'll talk about that later in the podcast to, uh, to help conserve and actually rewild uh, large parts of the Patagonia. So yeah, there's, is hopeful news for sure. Well, and you, you mentioned that and it just, I always go back to your interview with Dr. Rosler, you know, Rosler, Dr. Kinney. Rosler, yeah, mm-hmm. Kenny yeah. Rosler, yeah, down in Argentina. Oh, that mm-hmm. was an amazing, amazing interview, and and he talks a lot about Patagonia. It's episode two thirty seven. So if you, if you're looking at that, but he's on the ground there, right? He's on the ground fighting for the hooded grebe, but all the other species in that area. Yes, absolutely. That was a fantastic uh, interview, and the work uh, him and his team and some volunteers are doing to save the hooded grebe during their breeding season and post breeding season is it's just incredible. And, uh, and yeah. And when they're in that area, these large areas that are being protected to help the hooded grebe that ends up helping other species in the area as well. So, uh, yeah, it's like the, the umbrella. Yes, effect, yes, right? yes, yes. So check that one out. Check that one out. All right. Uh, Angie, before I get to uh, evolution, cause I did dork out a little bit on that. What came first, the llama 
Or the guanaco. I can't wait. Or the alpaca or the vicuna. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Taking a quick break. All right. Welcome back. All right, Angie. So I'm going to answer this question. What came first? And uh, we're going to get there, but start at the top. What's well, it's really interesting that uh, just a uh, yeah, yeah. point is that I love this podcast and I love you that you do these mm-hmm. deep dives and you're such an evolution nerd. Oh, I love it's it. awesome because I honestly would, would have totally thought, of course, guanacos and vicuñas come first because they're the wild counterparts mm. and you have to have the wild one to then domesticate. Right the llamas and the alpacas. Yeah, and I think the confusion is people were thinking the guanacos possibly could have been llamas that were got that uh, got loose, were let loose on purpose and just became wild uh, on their own and they were not the wild counterpart of the llama. So there was some confusion there that they were all the Yeah, same. it's like wild horses okay. in America. They they th- those aren't the original wild horses. Those were domesticated horses that got loose in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s and became wild, right? They became feral. So yes, the guanaco okay. might... All right, I'm in. I, I, I am I'm was, all ears. It was a bit of a confusing dive. I, I thought, like you did, it would have been clear cut. Yeah, guanacos and then they were became llamas and vicuñas became alpacas. That's what I would have thought. But we'll see. We'll see. I'm going to start big, though. I'm going to go to your one of your favorite orders, Artiodactyla. The best. Yeah, yeah. Well, well yeah. The, the, the second best. Sorry, I had a mom. Yeah. I had a mom brain moment. <laughs> your odd toed uh, ungulates are your favorites, but yeah, not many yes, in there. Those but, are number one, yeah, and then yeah. yes, shortly yeah. thereafter, number two, even toed. Yeah, they get you even toed. So this is a big. It's 270 species: pigs and antelope and giraffes and the camelids include the llamas, alpacas, and sheep, and goats, and cattle. So, Artiodactyla, big order. I, oh, I love this one. So, I just, curious about where camels fall in, in this, this large, large uh, order. And they're actually so unique. They're like, when you look at the, the bootstrap data, you know, looking at genetics and who they're related to, I mean, whales and dolphins are almost closer to deer than the camelids are, which is it crazy. You know, your cetaceans. That is crazy. Yeah. 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 Looking at the you know, cetaceans uh, next to the ruminants, you know, and the cervidae and the bovidae and the caprinae, you know, all of these different families and groups of animals that we've talked about, you know, with the deer and the sheep and the, and the cattle. Yeah. Our whales and dolphins seem to be more closely related than the camelids are. <laughs> and then you got the pigs, you know, they're out there too. They're, they're pretty unique. So I found that interesting. Now the family for the guanaco is Camelidae. So this is our only seven living species. We've covered one, if you remember. Yeah, the Bactrian camel. Yeah. Do you remember what yeah, episode that was? Yeah, and that's that my was? girl Indy and Mira and my boy Sachimo. I used to sing this song, Sachimo, he's a vegetarian. Uh, he was, that was a little off key, so edit that out. But uh, <laughs> I loved Satchel. He was such a silly boy, all slobbery during breeding season. But mm-hmm. yes, Indy camel had my heart. I got to, I got to do a lot of uh, positive reinforcement training, taught her to cush on cue, uh, got her to willingly put her own halter on and work on a lead 
uh, very safely uh, with the target stick, got weights on her. Yes, I yeah, wrote an article about it in yep, yep. Azac, which is a keeper for, uh, animal keeper form journal. So yes, Bactrian camels are the bomb. And I think if you go to our website and look up episode 35, you wow. will see Angie <laughs> hugging her Bactrian camel way back Andy. when. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. Once, uh, once I was able to uh, train her to go on cush, that's where they lay, uh, lay down, on cue, and then stay there, the, um, my upper management were, uh, felt that I was safe to go and leave the protective contact setting and go in and work with her. Uh, and so, yeah, and of course, that was my mission. I'm like, I just want to brush her and love on her. Oh, yes. Yes. I would like to make sure she gets her medication and her, her vaccinations. But uh, yeah, so indie girl. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, that's girl, one. And then one that we'll have to do maybe in the next year, year or so is the dromedary camel. We've been kind of saving that one because there's only two real big camel camels that you think of. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the llamas, alpacas, vicuñas, gonacos, and the wild. Yes, and it should be noted camel. too that uh, yeah. bacterian camels are the ones with two humps yes. and uh, actually have a population in the wild uh, that is endangered. Yes, bacterian. Critic- yeah. That is endangered, which we talk about in episode 35. Yeah, long time ago. That was like three plus years ago. Whereas the dromedaries only have the one hump, and they're yes. smaller, much, much smaller. Yeah. Now, genus. This is where it gets confusing. I'm like, okay, you would think the vicuñas and alpacas were different from the llamas and guanacos. But there's some debate that the genus llama, L-A-M-A, includes the alpaca and vicuñas but there might be two genera with the vicuña which is the both the vicuña and the alpaca right mm-hmm. so i'll get there in a second because i've got the study now within guanacos right now there's debate again still need to do more genetic studies that because they think there might be four subspecies depending on where they live so there could be four subspecies of guanaco because like we talked about some live in the high high andes and some live at yeah, sea the level. range is yeah. just massive mm-hmm. yeah 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 and you know the, the genetic evidence so far is pointing to at least two two populations a southern and a northern population but there still has to be some more more done there now before i get to the genetics of dicing out who came first, Quinaco, blah, blah, blah. Camelid evolution first emerged. Camelids with all the even-toed ungulates emerged about 50 million years ago. And my question to you is, where? Ooh. Where did these even-toed ungulates come from? North America. Yeah, always North America, which always blows me away, you know? I back, know. I back know. It's when in doubt. It's uh, North America. <laughs> North America, yeah. <laughs> they, they branched out. <laughs> so, yeah, North America. And then the first camelid, and it was about the size of a goat, emerges in the fossil record about 35 million years ago. So the Poabrotherium was the very first somewhat camel looking animal now what's interesting about camels angie they stuck around north america until about three million years ago they were just stuck and then about three million years ago they migrated to asia 
and down to Africa. And then others went south because the Isthmus of Panama was finally formed. And now you're getting animals crossing back and forth. Like I go back to our sloths, you know, that's when the sloths came down into South America. And that's where the guanaco, vicunas, llamas, or apacas came down. Then at the end of the Ice Age, about 10, 11,000 years ago, camelids in North America completely disappeared. Obviously, early humans had an impact, they think, uh, the end of the Ice Age, so you had a lot of rapid climate change. Uh, This is when the mammoths died out, everything else died out. So the original llamas, let's say L-A-M-A, not what we think of as a domestic one, uh, arrived in South America about 2 million years ago. All right, so to answer that question, what came first? I found a paper, pretty recent, this came out in 2020 in Genome Biology. So the genomic analysis of the domestication in post-Spanish conquest evolution of the llama and alpaca. Now, if that study doesn't get you excited in the morning... (laughs) It does. It does. It does does. for us. I I Mm -hmm. look at this stuff and I'm laughing because I'm like, the listeners are like, oh my God, I don't. Some might be. Some are super dorky. And mind you, I just have to, uh, Chris, we were talking before the podcast and he said, yeah, he's like, well, I I went on this deep dive and uh, it took about three hours and... uh, I'm just sitting home, and I'm just—it was such a beautiful weekend. And here. Uh, yeah, I say, well, you are a very busy person, and so yeah. uh, I love that you gave three hours to a Guanaco. Well, I had to know what came first because it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear anywhere. And we need more people like you in the world thinking like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. So okay. So basically, like what Angie said—that llamas came from Guanacos and. Uh, alpacas came from vicuñas is somewhat true and the the genomic evidence points to that but interestingly enough alpacas are more they have some llama imp, uh, llama influence in their genes so it Interesting. was yeah crossbreeding so, or something maybe yes yeah yeah so that they that the alpacas today have a little bit of llama influence in them okay so it, it does look like the guanacos uh, were uh, the original, and then the llamas were the domestic form. The vicuñas were the original, and then became an alpaca with some llama influence in there. What is really interesting is the genomic evidence that the DNA supports that the vicuñas actually expanded across South America about a million years ago. Guanaco didn't expand out until about 400,000 years ago. Well, Chris, I, that was going to be my next question. Then which came first, the Guanaco or the Vicuña? So I think Vicuñas were the ones yeah, that, that, that it, it looks like from that ancient ancestor that came mm-hmm. down from the Americas and migrated south. Uh, the Vicuña became more the dominant and then the Guanaco followed. You know, it became larger. You know, that might make sense a little bit larger. My final thing with this was domestication always find it fascinating because again these animals the llamas and alpacas had such an impact on south america around nine thousand years ago is when they were first domesticated i mean for their wool or their fiber Mm -hmm. their food uh, their pack animals they're they're still highly prized 
uh, for that today. So the domestication in the genes showing around southern Peru, Chile, Argentina, around this 7,000 to 9,000 years ago. So for both species, so it was almost maybe simultaneous like you see with donkeys and horses. You know, donkeys being domesticated in North Africa and horses being domesticated in uh, Eurasia, you know, around um, Ukraine area today. Final thing. Thank you for that deep dive. (laughs) Okay. So the final thing is now in our old, there was this Syrian camel they thought that lived that was like as large as an elephant. Oh, fun. But if you had to pick out another large, large camel, where do you think they might live or come from? It's not a trick question. <laughs> North America. <laughs> yes, in North America. Okay. <laughs> it's not a trick. So they did think the Syrian camel, like that was 13 feet tall at the shoulder, which is crazy high. But I don't necessarily know if there's, there's a lot of evidence because I came across this, this giant camel of the Arctic. And I was like, what? So one of the largest camelids ever to live, looked like a dromedary camel with one hump, lived in high Arctic in Canada about three and a half million years ago. Hmm. Now, at that time, Canada wasn't this, or this part of Canada wasn't this frozen wasteland. The temperatures were still near freezing, but they, they estimated it was about 20 degrees Celsius warmer. So they would get a little bit freezing, but it was, and it was the Ellesmere camel in Canada was about 30% larger than our dromedary camels of today. Estimates of nine feet at the shoulder, 2.7 meters, and weighed like nearly a ton. So I just, I haven't covered a crazy animal in a while, so I thought I, I would I would find a large camel. Always fun to talk about. It is super fun. Okay. Now let's move on uh, to some general facts, because there is a lot of fun physiology and behaviors. Uh, guanacos live anywhere 28... 32, 33 years. But I heard you talking to John about this before we started hitting record. Because mm-hmm. you're shuffling him off to bed. They're good swimmers and they're freaking fast, aren't they? Chris, this is yeah, yeah, blew my you. mind. And then I had to yeah. share it with John. Yeah, who, I heard uh, you. Of course knows, who, of course, worked with Squirt for years. That, yeah. They, Guanacos can reach speeds of up to 40 miles or 64 kilometers per hour. Yeah, they're blazing. That's like our, our racehorses are like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the average horse speed is about 30 miles or 48 kilometers per hour. Now, there are some famous racehorses that can run really, really fast. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And there is, the record holder was a quarter horse, uh, which was 55 miles per hour or 80, 88 and a half kilometers per hour. But that's the, the American quarter horse is not what's typically raced because they can only sprint 400 meters and then they just crash. Whereas the thoroughbreds are the ones that can run faster, longer. But at any rate, I just would have, after working with alpacas and granted they're domesticated and there's a herd of them, I I just didn't think, I would have never guessed in a million years that a guanaco could run that fast. And then I started finding some video beautiful video footage and we'll put it on our show notes uh taken from the bbc and then of course i think there was one from pbs of a guanaco i don't know if it's at top speed so maybe it's only 30 miles per hour but 
maybe it's 40 because it's uh, one of them. It's uh, one of them is running from a puma for their life. And I mean, they, they put their neck that long neck. They, they put their neck down and they gallop and they, they go. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, was incredible. And yeah, it's funny. John just had no idea about some of these fun facts. So <laughs> it's just such a, it's such a fun animal. Cause it's just one you just don't know a lot about. Right. Well, you just and, don't yeah, know they just, I guess you look at their body and you just, I don't, they're like horses are built for speed. Right. From their hooves to their muscling to all of it. Uh, but I just don't really think of a camel or an, a guanaco built for speed. But yeah, mm-mm, those guanacos mm-mm. can move. It's fun. It's fun. All right. And the next big thing I, I kind of went down a little bit, uh, just because I know they're, they're prized for it, but you know, wool or like you said, they're fiber. Yes. I think fiber is a technical term that we want to use yeah, yeah. as to... Okay. Well, and you worked with them, right? So very soft, I mean, comparable. Yes, definitely. With alpaca, we would get them sheared uh, once or twice a year, uh, depending on how their fiber grew. And yes, it was uh, it was beautiful. And of course, a lot of people I worked with then in Chicago, they, I think they did call it wool as well. So I guess we'll use fiber and wool interchangeably for this podcast. But yeah, it was uh, it was. I mean, this was coming off of them dirty, so it's a little bit different, I think, than like, um, I remember my parents, uh, when I was growing up, they they traveled to uh, Peru um, for a work-related trip, and they brought home a pillow that had, was made from uh, llama fiber, and and then they also brought home little, little llamas, like dolls or mm-hmm. not really stuffed animals is not the right term, but they're all, they're all throughout South America as a, as a, as a tourist gift typically, but they, ha- they look like a llama and then they actually have uh, the llama or alpaca fur on them. And of course it's cleaned up and it's just this beautiful wool and it is very soft, very, very soft. So both guanacos and llamas have what, what is known as this double coated uh, fiber so there's coarse guard hairs, and then there's this extremely soft undercoat. And the hairs of the undercoat are about 16 to 18 micrometers, which is very small in di- diameter, and I guess it's comparable to cashmere, which, of course, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. very, very, very soft. But it, when I was looking at it, I mean, it goes back to our muskox episode where you talked about the, the quiviet. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Remember we talked about them some of the muskox being farmed for their their wool or their hair right because the, those muskox have really long guard hairs and i, oh, I talked course. about they have to yeah go back to that episode and it, oh, it's such a fascinating animal so but yeah like they said with cashmere is like one of the softest wools right out mm-hmm. there and they they are right there with them and they need it to stay warm, right? They need these in these harsh, cold, cold, dry environments. They need these these hairs to protect them. Because one of the things I I was reading that the behaviors that they do is uh, depending on where they live. I don't know if you saw, if you ran across this or not, but they change their body position to either yes. open or closed thermal windows. Like it, it's that was weird. Well, yeah, it's it's a form of thermal regulation. Yeah, it it is very unique. Uh, It's a form of thermal regulation in that, and that guanacos are very hairy and have this this really uh, dense double coated uh, fiber. They do have very very thin wool that are both in their front and rear flanks, 
And what they do is they move their bodies in different positions, uh, whether it's with the wind or with the sun, but they can vary the amount of skin exposed for to either increase or reduce the heat exchange with the environment. And so if it's really cold and really windy, the guanaco can just shift its body position, uh, which will then, like you said, in this instance, close these, these thermal window areas and help them reduce the heat loss and thus stay warmer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 that's the first time I've, I've read that with an animal. Like, you know, I know. Very, 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 I, I, yeah, I, I, I'll have to look closer next time to really see this, this thin region of wool mm-hmm. uh, and their front and rear flanks. Now, another thing I, I found in adaptation uh, physiology wise that they have and being that they are found at much, much higher, you know, we're talking 10, 15,000 feet up or 4,000 meters. Uh, is like thick blood, like a lot thicker blood than us. Then I read a statistic where a teaspoon of guanaco blood contains about 68 million red blood cells. So when they compared that to our blood cells, RBCs, it's about four times that. So not only does it help them, you know, thicker blood, maybe stay warmer, but it, it just also low oxygen levels, uh, way up at these high altitudes. I only remember, God, I... I mean, skiing in, in Washington State, I'm probably, I was up at, I don't know, 10,000 feet. I remember I went to a conference in Colorado and I was I, for a week I stayed up at like 8,000 feet and I labored walking around. Like you can feel it. You're there for many days and you were up at Peru, right? So that's uh, Mount Chupichu. That, how, I mean, how high up were you there? Yeah, Chris, Machu Picchu is, is not quite that extreme. I mean, it's still, like I said, very, very high elevation in the Andes. I think it's about 2,500 meters, something around there. Uh, so I, I do remember being a little difficult, but I was also young and and in shape. In shape. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was a college professor at the time, so I really yeah, was, I was yeah, in shape. I, uh, yeah. But what the Kunako does to help in this situation, besides having more red blood cells to help get more oxygen to their body. Guanacos also are big hearted, which that makes me just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, squirt. A guanaco's heart is larger than an average mammal its size. And so it's, uh, it, there's estimates it's about 15% larger yeah. wow. than a similar, a similar weighing species. So, Almost like our cetaceans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but I mean, if you're pumping this yeah. thick blood through the body, the heart is mm-hmm. a muscle and the heart needs to be stronger. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, it makes sense over uh, evolutionary time that the heart, just the, the size and the weight of the heart would be bigger. Mm-hmm. Much larger. Yeah, it would be bigger. Be bigger. All right. Well, I, I mean, it's, I think the, the next unique physiology with them is their digestive system. So, you know, what they eat, these are browsers or grazers. They're opportunistic. They don't have a lot of choice in a lot of these high altitude environments. Uh, they do eat some some lichen, some cacti. Uh, but what was interesting is you mentioned it in the beginning, they have a split upper lip, mm-hmm. right, to be able to do this, which uh, reminds us a lot of our browsers and stuff. But then they their digestive system which I know you love always talking about the three chambers chambers and not a true ruminant, but they do ruminate meaning. Yeah. You maybe explain that better than me. Absolutely. I like the term pseudo ruminant. I always thought mm-hmm. that'd be a cool band name or something. <laughs> Cause yes, <laughs> I am that dorky. Uh, but yes, to ruminate just means that 
the, um, the ungulate will will eat their plant material, swallow it, and then while they're a little while later, uh, usually a lot of times when they're resting, uh, whether they're standing or they're laying down, they will regurgitate up large wads of cu- like cud and chew it again, like and, and, and like grind it down more uh, to help along with the digestion process. And cows we always think of as a, rumin- a true ruminant that has a four chamber stomach. So their stomachs, I w- they have the four chambers, uh, but I always think of it or teach it as like a beer vat, a place where you would uh, brew ve- beer. Like there's a lot, a place where a lot of fermentation is going on because there's a huge population of microbes in a ruminant like a cow, or in this instance, a pseudo ruminant like a guanaco in their in their stomachs. And these microbes are super friendly. They're good microbes, and what they do is they help break down the cellulose. Uh, they basically I, I eat it for lack of better terms, the cellulose that these ruminants eat and ends up in their stomach. Uh, they don't have enzymes to break down this plant material. And so the bugs do it for them. And, and in that process, this fermentation process, the bugs, uh, the microbes uh, generate a byproduct called volatile fatty acids or VFAs that then the ruminant or the pseudoruminant uh, can utilize as an energy source so it's just this really it's just this really awesome almost symbiotic I don't know if that's the right term uh, to describe it since I mean I guess it's two species that are helping each other out yeah I mean you get a lot of yeah bacteria and fungi Mm -hmm. and and all those microorganisms Mm -hmm. in the gut that that help And, 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 and what's interesting sorry to jump in but you know nutrition science say just for our listeners your gut biome we are discovering so much about our own microbes and our own digestive tracts that affect uh disease affects depression neurodivergencies Um, yeah so our own gut microbes are critical to our own health Mm -hmm. but for the ruminant yeah it's it's life or death they need those microbes or they they can't get those nutrients because think about eating straw one of the, the the least nutritious things I can think of or bark or something like that on a tree. And these animals can get some nutrients out of it. I, the only thing I would add to nutrition is guanacos don't need to drink water like the other camelids. They get mm-hmm. it from their, their food. But going back to climate change, if there's no rain or snow, then there's no food. <laughs> the guanacos can't eat or they, they, they don't get the moisture that they need. So... Um, yes, it, it yes. is critical. We, we do need water to an extent uh, in all these biomes to, to keep things going. Absolutely, Chris. And I would just add that their lips, I got to talk about guanaco lips. <laughs> <laughs> They're just really sensitive. Uh, and it does help them almost root and sift through all the different desert vegetation that might be thorny or pokey. And then they can figure out which uh, yummy uh, yummy morsels they want to grab. And so their lips definitely help tell the story of what they should eat and shouldn't eat and, uh, and, and help them along the way. So, yeah, they're like little tiny fingers, which if you ever have the pleasure of feeding a chameleon species like a camel, uh, which of course has larger lips, uh, the split lip, or an alpaca, guanaco, llama, that 
It's really, it's really fun. <laughs> There's yeah. just, well, I said earlier in the podcast, I, I said that you haven't lived unless you've been spit on, which I'll talk about here in a second. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I would counter that too with uh, feeding, feeding a, a chameleon is also yeah. very fun with those, with that lip, the split lips, very nice. Split lip, yeah, five, well, they're amazing creatures. They really are. Uh, before we get to behavior, the predators I found interesting with Conacos, primarily the puma, you mentioned that earlier them running mm-hmm. from them i think it's a species we need to do soon it's the massive range from florida panthers all the way up into canada right all the mm-hmm. way down to south america i think it's a species we need to cover and then i ran across this one with the the young guanacos and i've never heard of this species i had to look it up but the colpios can possibly go after the young ones. Is that true? Yes, Chris. And I didn't know what Ocopios was either, which is why I love this uh, podcast. Uh, but Ocopio is also known as Ocopio Zorro, an Andean Zorro, an Andean Fox, a Pomaro mm. Wolf, an Andean Wolf. So lots of different names. But mm-hmm. it, it's not a true fox. It's actually more closely uh, connected or related to the jackals and wolves but okay. it looks like a fox and so they don't researchers don't know if it's convergent evolution but i thought oh my gosh we have to cover this i love when there's mm-hmm, species mm-hmm. that i've never heard of and what researchers found on the islands of tierra de fuego which once again is the southern tip of south america uh and the guanacos uh, do range that far south is that these species of uh cupios this fox like creature this fox-like creature was actually uh preying on guanacos and on their their young the juveniles which are uh, called chilingos and a study out in 2010 uh, showed that uh the guanacos typical strategy is to see and flee right so puma comes bam they run and uh they will do some kicking and jumping on it, which I saw in some of these amazing uh, BBC and videos, BBC and PBS videos. But what happens with these colpios is that it's a, to- a totally different strategy. In fact, instead of fleeing, uh, the guanaco actually fights back. And Ooh, okay. it. Yes, uh, it's not shy at all. It will kick, it will charge the fox, uh, and it will do everything in its power instead of fleeing to get after that stealthy fox and um, and hopefully basically scare the fox off. And researchers were just stunned by these aggressive guanaco mothers that were defending their youngs. And keep in mind, okay, that the guanaco is 260 pounds, and the audacity of this fox is, is like 30 mm-hmm. pounds. <laughs> it's bush dog. 14 kilograms. Yeah, 14 yeah. kilograms. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. They were they were stunned that the that this fox would even uh, try to go after a herd of guanacos. I mean, yes, they're of course the chilingos, the younger guanaco, the juvenile guanacos are are, are, are way a lot less. But there's still a fair amount of them. And and so researchers aren't sure, uh, but they expect that, number one, there's no pumas on these islands mm-hmm. in Tierra de Fuego. And so they think that it's allowed this fox to become the top dog, if you will, for lack of better terms, and basically occupy its e- ecological niche. So, yeah, I just, it was a different, because 
Gunako's yeah. it was just different it was different uh face of them. Usually once again they're 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 pretty shy and they just run, but mm-mm. Well, I actually take that back. The mothers, uh, when we get to yeah. the males, the males can be pretty tough. So we'll talk about that too. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. Well, run into it. I mean, the behaviors of them. What's the general behaviors? And then some of the stuff that you've sent me it was like, wow. So yes, Chris, we've, we've alluded to it a little bit, but uh, guanacos are really social. Uh, but they do have flexible social systems. So the pop populations can come in different units uh they can primarily be family units there can be male groups uh and then there can also be solitary males and then depending on how many guanacos are hanging out together which in general uh i read it could be anywhere from five to thirteen uh but during the breeding season the females may uh get into larger groups uh depending on the region that they live in and i'll talk about this really cool and unique birthing strategy that guanacos have been uh documented undertaking and so what we see with the family groups is that's going to be headed by one male who's very territorial and they'll have various females and then of course the young from that season uh and so a male is typically not going to be old enough to or strong enough to have his own uh, harem, I guess, if you will, uh, until he's honed in his fighting skills. And that's where some of these bachelor groups or male groups that are composed of like yearlings um, or a little or one to two year olds, because it takes up to three to four or five years to hone in these um these fighting skills that they use to fight other males when it is time to uh, win over um, a a group of females. And then when it is time for male-on-male combat, it is very violent, brutal. Uh, In fact, there was a video put out by the BBC in Wild Patagonia called Brutal Fight for Dominance Among (laughs) Guanacos. That's understatement. And I just, because, well, yes, yes. But I, 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 I almost, I almost was like, what's BBC talking about? They don't know what mm-hmm. they're talking about. Brutal. Come on. That seems, that seems like clickbait. And because that's not the alpacas in Guanaco. I know. Yeah. And then I clicked on it and my jaw dropped. And uh, from what I saw yeah. is that uh, males in competition uh, during uh, the breeding winning over breeding rights for females uh, and trying to take over another male's territory is definitely very violent. And this is going to happen when males are about four to six years old and are strong enough and uh, probably have enough uh, uh, hormonal influence to take on another male because when they are fighting, uh, of course, there's a lot of rearing and fighting and kicking. uh, But... There's also fleeing, and then the male that's chasing the fleeing male will target in on a specific anatomical region of the male he is chasing. Okay, yes. Known as the testicles. Yes. Oh, my gosh. With his razor-sharp teeth, I will quote the documentary. Yeah. Ow. Uh, Ow, ow, ow. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll put that video on our show notes. And, of course, BBC did get it right. That is, it's a, the title does make sense. The footage is incredible. Um, It's not gory or anything like that, of course. But, uh, yeah, uh, yes, uh, two male guanacos that are 
fighting, stay away from them. And uh, they, uh, and then I, that's when I really hope the one that's fleeing, the other one, the loser is fleeing. That That's when I hope he can reach 40 miles an hour and get out of the bear so his testicles uh, don't get harmed in the process, right? So, <laughs> no. yes, uh, and, and that one, it, uh, John was still, right before you and I re- hit record, he was still talking about it. He's like, I just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just had no idea, and, and this is uh, this is yeah, this is awesome. I mean, this is just so interesting. And these are yeah, he's like, this is this is this is why I'm glad you do the podcast. And I was like, me too. Yes. All right. So one of the fun things, and you mentioned this a little bit, is you know getting spit at, and I I had to laugh because you know some of the stuff reading the behavior is that the females. When they are not happy with a male and tell them to leave me alone, they will spit at him. <laughs> so that made me laugh. Yeah. What are? The, how do they communicate? What is the spitting behavior about? And then are they vocal? Or are they not? Yeah. Or, you know. Well, and and uh, just a minor correction: there is spitting at, but if you're mm. a bystander, you actually spit on, right? Like it, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it sprays because what it is is it's a lot of their. Uh, regurgitant so we talked about how um, guanacos are pseudoruminants and they do ruminate and so they are going to have a lot of some cud or particles of chewed up well digested chewed digested and then rechewed with lots of stinky enzymes and stuff and saliva on it and that plus their spit is what they they, I mean, talk about uh, sending out a loogie or something, some slang like that. Like that's, they just send this green stuff, little particles of green stuff mixed with uh, their saliva at you. And because it, because the plant material was previously in their stomach and then, and then regret, it's just, the smell is awful. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't think, and I don't think herbivores smell like, and it's probably too much information for the podcast, but like I don't like like herbivore poop does not bother me. I mean, obviously, I guess everybody knows that because I I I study it, and uh, but it's just it's just chewed up plant material, and I don't I don't it has a smell, but I don't think it smells that bad. But digesta that's been in the stomach and then expelled out smells really bad and mm-hmm, it's sticky mm-hmm. and it's small and it's like small particle it's not just like one glob uh it's like a spray so little particles of alfalfa chewed up alfalfa because uh that's what we would feed our alpaca uh would would uh, hit you uh, and so <laughs> all over like you know it's not just like one chunk like you're finding it in your hair and you know in your undergarments for like the rest of the day so why why do uh the camelid family do this well chris pretty much uh summed it up it's uh they're not they're not happy that is what you don't obviously you don't spit on your friends or you don't spit Mm. on somebody when you're courting them or trying to show your good side so it's it's when they're upset and so for the the alpacas and camels i worked with like they enjoyed my company and they you know we had a very good relationship uh it was pro- uh, positive reinforcement based and all that. And so the times I were spit on, they were actually probably aiming for the veterinarians that we were working with. <laughs> yeah, don't blame them. Mm-hmm, that, were, mm-hmm, yeah. that were either trying to do a vaccine or check like a, uh, 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 lift their feet up and check their feet. Or I do remember one or two of our alpacas did not, um, did not like being sheared until we did some more training with that. And so 
it was usually when you're, when, from my experience uh, as a human, you were trying to get them to do something they didn't want to do. And that would be one of the, they express it in several ways. They vocalize when they're upset and then they will also spit on you and they'll also actually go down into the cush. Uh, they'll lay down and basically just be like, no, I'm not, I'm not moving anywhere or doing whatever, whatever it is you want me to do. I'm just, no, I'm not doing that. So but besides spitting, uh, guanacos do produce a range of vocali- vocalizations. And I mentioned, of course, some of these uh, negative times where they'll be upset uh, when they might give an alarm call uh, to warn other family members that there's a puma or this cupio fox around. They also make like a clicking noise and almost like a, a, glunt- a grunting noise. Um, the llamas and alpacas, when you're reading them with your little kids, they don't, they don't, they don't have a an, a classic vocalization that they make like an uh, like a cow does or an elephant. Similar to other ungulates, which is one of the reasons why I love them so much, is they have very expressive faces, and they communicate a lot between this what I call either facial or visual expression to one another. Uh, so when Uh, They'll use their ears to perk up or when uh, they're upset, they'll lay their ears back like a horse. Uh, And so, and then their tail normally is going to point in a downward position, but it can also go straight out if they're alert or up. And lastly, a really interesting uh, behavior that juvenile guanacos or chilingos will do is when they are submissive, uh, if they're being threatened by another adult male or something, they will crouch down and lower their neck and bend their knees and raise their tail. And so uh, it's been suggested that might be like a nursing position to be like, hey, remember, I'm really small and I still nurse with my mom, uh, which mm-hmm, they do nurse mm-hmm. for a while. And we'll talk about that when we get to re- reproduction. But yeah, so they, they, the juveniles have ways of communicating that are somewhat different than adults as well. Now, what do we know about repro as far as breeding and and generation intervals and all that fun stuff? Yeah, Chris. Well, guanacos uh, are seasonal breeders, usually breeding one time per year between December and January, which is actually the summer months uh, for the Southern Hemisphere. And what's super fascinating I did not know about guanacos is that they are actually induced ovulators. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's a little different Mm -hmm. for an ungulate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... And this is found in other South American camelid species too. But what happens is once the male breeds the female, that stim- triggers her to ovulate about 24 to 48 hours after she breeds with the male. Her gestation period is very long. It's about 11 and a half months, almost a year. But that makes sense because we want the offspring or the chilingos to also be born in November, December, when the climate in South America where they live is much more tolerable or as warm as it's going to be. There's this amazing, unique birth ritual that happens with female guanacos around the same month, the same time in November each year, where females get together and they they give birth all around the same time. And these are females, mind you, had not been all traveling together, right? Like they have their own, mm-hmm. for lack of better terms, family groups. Families don't necessarily be exactly related, but their own smaller social units. But they come together and this large herd uh, 
from what I looked at, from what it looked like on the video, close to a hundred, maybe larger. And it's the same spot. And they somehow all know to go there like on the same day. And it becomes like their birthing grounds. And of course, like any great mystery in animal behavior and sciences, uh, there's still a lot of unknowns. But one speculation is, of course, safety in numbers, right? Uh, the more the larger herd you are, the harder it is to like isolate uh, one or two of the offspring. No, yeah. it's kind of like it reminds me of si- the saiga. Remember the saiga? I'll go to one area to birth. It's just, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but. Uh, typical to other ungulates, there's going to be a single offspring born and, uh, they'll be about 10% of the maternal weight. So if the mom was 260 pounds, they will be about 26 pounds and they're born, uh, pretty much ready to go precocial. They stand within five to 60 minutes of, uh, postpartum and they, learn to follow their mom pretty quickly and how to avoid how to avoid predators in these open habitats and they're pretty much exclusively foraging uh, by the time they are eight months old and they're still definitely nursing at this point in time they're not fully weaned but they're a lot of their nutrient uh, content is coming from uh, the forage that they're eating and what they're learning to eat but typically a guanaco juvenile is going to be a, uh, expelled from the family group from both male and female anywhere from 11 to 15 months old. Well, like you said, they are least concerned, but you know, we know their population is going down. It's trending downwards. A lot of challenges uh, that they're faced with. So uh, is there a guanaco conservation foundation out there or something? Or is this a species where, hey, there's, there's an opportunity just like hippos? Well, Chris, there probably is an opportunity for just a Guanaco uh, conservation organization. Hint, hint, John, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I want to highlight this week a group called Rewilding Chile. Uh, it was formerly known as Tompkins Conservation Chile, but it's a nonprofit foundation that carries on the legacy of the advocates Douglas and Christy Tompkins. So um, this pair decided in 1990s to dedicate their lives to conserving uh, the beautiful and biodiverse uh, Chilean Patagonia, which I've been to, and they they are not wrong. Uh, so with preserving this Patagonia region, uh, they, they want to help to counter climate change and then, of course, uh, help uh, counter this ex- species extinction crisis that we're in. And so Rewilding Chile can be found at www.rewildingchile.org. And they also have a beautiful Facebook page with lots of followers and really interesting information. A lot of it's in Spanish, so I will be learning. So it'll help me review and practice for my next trip to Chile. Uh, But it's called Fundacion Rewilding Chile. And that's going to be F-U-N-D-A-C-I-O-N Rewilding Chile is uh, how you can search for them on Facebook and on social media. But yes, Rewilding Chile is definitely a friend of the guanacos because they are saving this habitat from urbanization and then also doing several things to help us protect the species that are in there and then of course rewilding it to help uh, these populations grow and so one of the species that they do focus a lot of their work on is the guanaco yeah yeah among several well, others so yeah, yeah. no yeah rewilding re- chile i gotta get down there uh, one of my good friends i work with is from chile down here living in New Zealand. So shout out to Beatrice. Uh, You're an amazing uh, friend. So uh, 
Great job, Angie. I don't know where we're going next week yet, but <laughs> somewhere around the planet. Yeah, I wonder uh, where your next three-hour deep dive will be. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple ideas. I've, yes. We've got a couple ideas. Uh, it's always the, uh, fun, that's for sure. Yeah, our December. But uh, great job today. Thank you to the listeners. Please keep sharing uh, this podcast. Keep helping us grow, spreading the word on conservation. You're our heroes too. So thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. In this holiday season, while you're sitting around the table, uh, quiz your relatives. Do you know what a guanaco is? Uh, do you know what a llama is? And uh, and see if you can get the conversation going. And uh, it's really fun. And these and these species can always use more people uh, being educated about them and in their and in their conservation corner. Listen, learn, share, join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.